0: Welcome to another episode of the Hoftime Report. I'm Wayne Hoffman, president of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, and I welcome you to this broadcast. Today in this episode, I talk with Senator Stephen Thane from Emmett. He's the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, and as a result, he is a key voice on education policy in the State House. In our chat, we talked about education choice, we discussed social justice in our colleges and universities, and also the status of Idaho's Common Core replacement. I hope you enjoy today's program. Senator Stephen Thane, who is the chairman of the Senate Education Committee now. Um, known Stephen for a long time, helped him with, I, I want to say it was your first campaign, it was probably your second campaign for office, if I remember right, in the middle 2000s. Probably second one. Second campaign. The one that you won. That's the most important uh, detail, right? The one that <laughs> the, I won. The one you won, I helped you with. <laughs> At any rate, thank you for being here because you have a lot of stuff going on in the Education Committee, and why don't we just get started with um, what's happening in the K-12 education system. What is the number one priority for you as the chairman of the Senate Education Committee this year?
1: Well, the number one priority for me is parent choice. Because if we get parents involved in the system and they take more responsibility to see their kids are educated, then we can get more bang for our buck without spending a ton more money. And the way you get parents involved is by giving them choices.
0: So what's that going to look like?
1: Well, there's several choice bills out there that we could talk about. Uh, One of them is a uh, innovative classroom bill. So that states if uh, uh, parents of 24 elementary students come together and they don't like the curriculum, like their science curriculum or the math curriculum uh, of the school district, they can petition the school district to have an alternative curriculum. And the school district will provide a teacher in a classroom, and they'll teach the curriculum the parents choose.
0: Okay. And, and I suppose there's other, you're looking at an education savings account program as well, I understand.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not writing that bill, but there's, there's a bill coming through that will, uh, uh, for example, the governor had a strong family, strong students program this, this summer and fall with uh, federal funds. And there's some legislators writing a bill to c- expand that do, or to actually codify it w- with state funds and keep that going uh, so parents can have a little bit of money to, to uh, if they need a tutor or something like that, a curriculum, so they can improve their child's education.
0: What are the odds of getting these done? Now, I understand there are a lot of dynamics at play here we, between COVID, the Blaine Amendment being erased by virtue of the Espinosa decision at the U.S. Supreme Court last year, and some general frustration about the way in which school districts are being managed, it seems as if there's a lot at play, more so in previous years. What kind of odds do you give?
1: Well, there's five bills that I think are significant. I think uh, there's a good chance all of them will pass. Uh, so what they are is the ESA bill. It's, it's a micro, Part of that bill is a, a micro-grant type bill so it, it's patterned after the governor's approach, so he, he's already done it. I don't know why people would complain about it. The innovative classroom bill that gives parents choice in in curriculum uh, a high school workforce readiness high school diploma that allows students to to focus more on vocational skills in high school and, and get a high school diploma Th- then there's uh if I can remember them all <laughs> uh Uh, I should have them written down. There's two others. Uh, One has to do with uh, elementary flexibility bill. So if a student gets advanced, then the parents uh, can negotiate a flexible attendance. The school still gets paid, but the parents can create a homeschool, public school mix so they can do more of the teaching at home. So, So it just gives parents some flexibility. And there's one other, and for right now, I can't remember what that is.
0: So what are the things, the obstacles standing in the way of some of these ideas getting through? Who, and I guess, who are the obstacles, I should also ask?
1: Well, the number one obstacle, which is why I, I have been fascinated in education for 25 years, is there's two views of education. The dominant view is that the state of Idaho, or any state, is responsible to see the child as educated. The Constitution doesn't say that. The Constitution says we're to provide an education system. Right. But a lot of people think it's the state's responsibility. It isn't. But those that think it's the state's responsibility, if you give a choice to a parent over curriculum or time in school or you know how, how they approach it, then uh, even a, a mini-grant proposal, then they're feeling like you're taking money away from the system. Well, to me, the system is supposed to serve parents. Parents aren't supposed to serve the system. So we, we have an, a fundamental change we need to undergo, which is the uh, the education system needs view itself as a service organization and ask parents what resources they need, what services they need, and then provide them. If we would have had this attitude years ago, we would have responded much differently to Common Core, for example. But the number one obstacle is this idea that it's the state's responsibility. So you find the Idaho Education Association, uh, some legislators are lined up in, in that line. But we're moving more and more to recognize that parents are not the enemy here. The homeschooling movement, for example, in the 1980s was one of the first big steps to break the monopoly of public education. Because... Untrained parents are getting wonderful results if they engage. You know, if they have discipline and they find good curriculum. So we know that parents are the primary reason that kids succeed in any school system—public, private, home school. Uh, but changing the the idea that parents are the solution, not the problem is the biggest obstacle and those that hold that belief system.
0: I find it endlessly fascinating that the three things our state constitution calls for when it comes to education is that it be free, which, of course, it's impossible. The language behind that is somewhat interesting. Thorough and uniform. Those are the things that our founding fathers wanted for our education system. I would hope that one of the things we'd want out of our education system is excellence. (laughs) Are, do we have that now? And and if not, how far away are we from that?
1: Well, let me digress a little bit because the part of the state constitution you quoted is after the part that says the purpose for education. True. Which is to establish a Republican form of government or to maintain a Republican form right. of government. I would say our current education system is failing in its constitutional duty. We should have a class entitled the failures of socialism throughout history. We don't have that class.
0: And in fact, our schools, and you can correct me if you feel this is not accurate, seem to espouse the virtues of socialism.
1: Uh, Yes. If, If not overtly, covertly. Because the public education system is socialism. True. Now, we differ on probably if we should have a public education system since we have one, that's what I'm trying to improve. The, the thing about socialism, if you really analyze what it is, socialism centralizes responsibility in the hands of a few. So they control the choices, and they control the resources to fulfill that responsibility. I maintain we need to transfer the responsibility back to parents that want it, because not all parents want it. But those that want it should have more choices. They should have some access to some resources. So to me, it's about moving the responsibility back. It's not so much about if we have a public education system or not.
0: It's who's ultimately responsible to see kids are educated. But why couldn't that be part of the conversation? I mean, in 1890, the conversation was, we need to have an education system because we need to have an educated society to maintain the republic, and that system should be free, thorough, and uniform. Is there anything wrong with, in 2021 or beyond... Having a conversation that says, "Maybe a system that's run by the government, especially in an era when the sum total of all human knowledge is a cell phone away, isn't really necessary anymore."
1: Uh, I think we can have the dis- dis- discussion. For example, in Europe, there's many countries that have state-funded education, and they have a state system, but they also fund other choices, and so there's a lot different. There's a lot of difference between the state-funded system and a state run system. Now, I don't think Idahoans are quite ready for that yet, but I wouldn't have talked about this 10 years ago. I can talk about it now. So we are moving.
0: You're you're correct. And I remember when I was working on uh, Tom Luna's second campaign for superintendent of public instruction, and he was still trying to extricate himself from having said in 2002 that um, he supported vouchers. And that was just a kiss of death. Fast forward today, and you can have a legitimate conversation about vouchers or education savings accounts or other forms of education choice that maybe weren't even possible 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago.
1: And I think this has happened. One, two things. I'd like people to recognize that the discussion has been changing over time. And it started with the homeschool movement. You know, the second thing is, which I've probably forgotten already, (laughs) And I ate lunch, too. Uh, Yeah, I don't remember what the second thing was. I'm sorry. Well,
0: that's okay. I'm sure you'll think of it, we'll come back to it. But let me ask you, if we're going to fix the education system, how much of that would require, would necessitate giving school boards some of their powers back? And we saw some of that power play during this I call it the so-called pandemic. I don't want to necessarily get you into an argument about the pandemic or not. But uh, school boards who are frustrated because other boards are making decisions for them or, in the case of the West Ada School District, they were simply told, you know, we're going to do a teacher sick out by the West Ada Education Association, and now they're forced to continue negotiating with them because that's what the state law requires them. Do school boards actually have the kinds of control they need over the operations of their own school district.
1: So I remember the second thing.
0: Oh, go back to the second thing, and we'll come back to mine.
1: <laughs> the second thing was we've been able to make this shift in the conversation because we've been focusing on what we're trying to do to improve things. That's really critical. If you, if you focus on complaining, then, one, it doesn't, it's not very, doesn't feel very good but also it doesn't give a vision of where we're headed. When you focus on what can we do to make things better, then it gives us some power to argue from, well, let's do this. Then we start setting the agenda. So when it comes to school boards, you know, your, your question of West Aid and different things, um, what is it that local school boards are trying to accomplish? And I don't expect you to answer that, but that's, that's one of the questions they need to ask of themselves because many times they're trying to please the teachers, which is an important segment to, to please, don't, don't get me wrong. Teachers are, are important, they, they have a central role. When I talk about parents, I'm not discounting the importance of teachers. But in order to really improve the system, there's an interplay between parents, students, teachers, administrators, the taxpayers. And so I think in the past, School boards have focused more on the voice of teachers rather than bringing all these voices in and saying, uh, what is it that everyone wants, and making accommodations. Socialism doesn't work because it's one size fits all. I've never understood during this pandemic why we've said everyone should be in school or everyone should be out of school. Let the ones that don't want to be in school stay home and do blended learning or online learning Those that want to come to school, let them come to school. Why are we having this debate? I've never understood why we are even having the debate of if schools are open or not. If you don't want to come, no one's got a gun to your head asking you to come. But yet there are people who believe in collective salvation, you know, earthly salvation, that says we all have to do the same thing. It's a falsehood. It's a false doctrine. We don't have to do all the same thing. The history of the United States should point out that we have made progress because we've allowed people to do different things. When it comes to religion, you have Mormons, you have Catholics, you have Seventh-day Adventists, they're all doing fine. They're doing different things. you got Muslims, you got all sorts of folks. Well, since when do we have to do the same thing when it comes to education or public policy? We need to accommodate diversity. That's what conservatives are the ones that are really diverse because I don't want to control you, Wayne. I want to have a structure where you can make your decisions, which is what we call government. And I want a structure where my rights are protected and I can make my own decisions. And so the real question is who's responsible to take care of the poor? Who's responsible to take care of education? Because that's what we're talking about is education. <laughs> you know, that's really the question. If it's the parents' responsibility, then the public education system and decisions completely change.
0: It, it, I would say it is the parent's responsibility, but the uh, parents have been led to believe that it's somebody else's responsibility. I, I mean, I, I keep going back to all, both my kids are grown now. They both went to public schools, but even I, I think failed because I allowed for the public school system to control their education. You know, it was very easy for a person to put a kid on a bus with $2.50 in their pocket and, have them have the decisions about what they're learning and what they eat by the $2.50 being used for the lunch program is what I mean by that. Yeah, uh, they Somebody else is figuring that out because it's very easy. And heck, if you had a program that that also clothed the kids, or you sent, put the kids on the bus naked and they show up there and somebody th- slaps a T-shirt <laughs> and a pair of jeans on them, that's great because you know that at least they have clothes on their backs, right? But when you are exonerated from having to make those decisions of course somebody else takes up that slack that is the nature of government right
1: right so um, it's, it's really fascinating I remember the, the the fourth bill or the fifth bill now <laughs> so we're back to that okay go ahead <laughs> it's a, it's an advanced opportunity style program for private school students okay so it's a mini grant for Private school students for dual credit and AP tests is is what that is. Uh, So what's interesting is why you were seduced to give up your responsibility to see your kids were educated is because if you wanted to stay in the public education system, what would you have done different? You could have taught them more at home, but the kids were tired because they were in school for seven or eight hours. So they didn't want to talk to you when they got home. Right. I know I had kids too.
0: (laughs) More of them than I did.
1: Yeah, I talked, but I didn't know they were listening, but they actually listened more than I thought. But you didn't get involved because could you change the curriculum? Could you change the school's schedule? Could you change your teacher? There's nothing you could do. So it's choice that allows parents to get engaged. That's what the power of choice is. Let me give you a statistic here. You've got seven factors of public education that are important. Five of them cost money, two of them don't. The two that don't are the desire of a student to learn and the, the engagement level of the parents. Parents get engaged because they have choices or or they feel responsibility that they just naturally, they, they haven't let go of it completely because you didn't let go of all your responsibility. You, you saw that they...
0: No, but again, it is a function of what government does to people. It allows for them to get off the hook and not take responsibility. But when I have a child, you know, I'm responsible for feeding them, clothing them, and educating them, unless I give that responsibility to somebody else. And it's easy to do that because here's a program. We'll take care of you. Put them on a school bus. Somebody will handle the issue. And that, in and of itself, reduces the power and influence of the person, of the parent's, in favor of something else, in this case, the government program. Now, it could be, a, could be a private school, for that matter, too. But in this particular case, for most of the people educated in Idaho and in the United States, it's a government program.
1: Now, most good parents send their kids to school, but they don't give up the responsibility, whether it be private or public. They still monitor to make right. sure education is taking place. So I don't mean to give the indication that if you send your kids to public school – you're an irresponsible parent. I don't mean to say that right. at all.
0: But it allows for you to to divest some of the responsibility. Yeah. Not necessarily all of it, but some of that responsibility, and that's an important thing. I want to get back to this thing, though, before I forget, because it's really important. Because there was a big conversation about the power of uh, – because one of the things that I thought that I had control over was if I had a complaint about the way the school was operating, I'd go to the school board. Do school boards have the power they need to run their schools under Idaho law?
1: Uh, I, I th- well, you probably have to break it down into different categories. Like curriculum, they can choose the curriculum. Can they discipline? Uh, uh, do they have tools to discipline teachers and students? Yes. Uh fairly regulated on how they spend the money. So specifically, what are you asking?
0: Do they have the ability to say, no, we don't want to negotiate with a union that is either way left of center or behaves in a way that is egregious towards the parents who go to, uh, to, and and the kids who go to school here. The case that's most obvious being the West Ada school district, the, West Ada Education Association did a sick out, really ruined the uh, work uh, plans of the parents and also the education plans of the parents and the students, and yet the school board is still going to have to sit across from them at the negotiating table because that's what Idaho law requires them to do. Why can't the school board be able to say, nope, you behaved in a bad way, we don't want to negotiate with you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Current law says they have to negotiate if, if they're represented by 51, 51% or so of the yep. teachers. Yeah, what it says. Now, it also is fairly lenient in saying that after a certain date, they, they don't have to continue to, to negotiate. They can, give, they can uh, uh, give the teachers' union their last best offer. So it's pretty, pretty open for school districts uh, but most school districts realize that it's a working relationship. And so we, we want to make sure we don't tip the scales too much. So those, there's incentive for both sides to work together. And I, th- I think the system right now is pretty balanced. Let me go back to one other thing.
0: You know, I'm, I'm at a loss as to why this is so controversial. When I asked uh, uh, Re- Representative Klaus, your counterpart over in the house, same question, he had the same kind of very nervous chuckle also. I don't understand that. There are plenty of states that have no public collective bargaining whatsoever. Idaho, 85% Republican in both bodies, does, and yet school boards don't have the ability to say, yeah, we don't want to negotiate. So the word in the, in the statute is the school board shall negotiate with the union. Not may negotiate, shall negotiate. And, and then what does
1: the statute go on to say?
0: That said, goes on to say a lot of things, but I mean, you might tell me something specifically.
1: Well, specifically, it doesn't say they have to agree that the, the last best offer of the school district can stand.
0: There, there's a last best, best offer, but the question is should we have uh, a little bit more latitude for the elected school board to be able to make a decision about whether they want to negotiate or not? And that so, might also put in place uh, uh, an incentive for a union to not behave badly as they did in meridian so i gave you
1: the answer didn't like it and that is so if you don't like the answer that's fine That's
0: fine i am just trying to understand why it's so controversial i mean the the police departments don't have um, required collective bargaining with the cities in which they engage they they either want to negotiate or they don't have to negotiate Um, that's up to the cities we give them that at the city level, but for some reason, school boards aren't allowed to make the same decision. Okay, you disagree. That's fine. Just (laughs) wondering why that is. And then the second question that's part of that, of course, is shouldn't we be looking at the fact that these unions are heavily tied to very leftist-leading organizations at a national level that are pro-abortion, that are anti-gun and anti-capitalism? And yet, by having that, that mandatory negotiation they end up actually siphoning money from Idaho to the national level to fund their dangerous ideology.
1: Well, those are fairly deep issues, important issues, but I I don't think people should make the mistake that all teachers have leftist ideologies.
0: Oh, no, I didn't say that. I'm talking about the National Education Association, which has gone on record as supporting... abortion as opposing gun rights, as opposing capitalism, these values that we hold in high regard, and yet we help fund them at a local level through our local labor unions, not the teachers, because the teachers, I don't know, necessarily agree with those, but they feel they have to be represented by some organization, so they are.
1: So I was just talking with a legislator who has a wife that's a teacher, going to become a teacher, and she didn't want to join the IEA because of that association. There's something out there called the Northwest Professional Educators Association. And so I looked that up for and They're located in, in Meridian. Uh, I just – so my legislative career, I, I've had a couple of maxims. One is to focus on what's good for kids. And basically, because I, Teachers Union in Idaho is fairly uh, – they don't have much influence at the state legislature. They might out in the districts, I don't know, but uh, I don't pay much attention to them. So I don't go out of my way to to change what's going on with them. You, you know, during the t- time Tom Luna was alleged was in the superintendency, we made some major shifts in the relationship between the the um, teachers union and, and administration or the school boards. One time they had this evergreen clause. We got rid of that, so we've made some. If if that balance needs to be changed again or reconsidered, I'm all for talking about it. But you just you don't think
0: they need to be changed? I mean, for some reason I haven't heard any concerns about it. You don't pay any attention to them, and yet they have this tremendous amount of power. There is no statute that requires a school board to negotiate with the taxpayers, for example. There's no statute that says the school board is required to negotiate with. I don't know the local businesses in town, but they have to negotiate with the labor unions.
1: So, so is there something else you want to talk about? We no, disagree no, the, on no, that's this fine. Right. Okay, we
0: we can we can. I'm just kind of I'm fascinated, endlessly fascinated, why a Republican legislature and a Republican-controlled state is so afraid of rebalancing the tables when it comes to labor unions. But I, I can we can move on to other things. No, we, we can move on. We, we tackled uh, Common Core last legislative session a little well, bit. Well, let, let me let uh, me address one thing
1: if I sure. could you got so some people don't recognize uh, a couple of relationships here we we have some really good family structure in Idaho and we're benefiting that as ta- from that as taxpayers because we spend $3500 less per student on our students in Idaho than the national average if we did what other states tried to do which is increase teachers salaries in order to uh, improve educational outcomes, it would cost $1.2 billion more, $1.2 billion more. So what we're doing, you know, some people have heard that we're 50th in the nation. We're actually 51st because you include the District of Columbia, and I'm proud of that as far as spending goes. But we're 16th in the nation, and we were as high as 5th in the nation in preparing kids for college. On the NAEP scores, which is national – you know, Association of Educational Progress, National Assessment of Educational Progress. They do fi- fourth and eighth grade reading and math. We, we score uh, either in the top 10 or in, in the teens. So Idaho and Indiana are two states that spend way lower than the national average yet are getting high rates of return. Indiana, I think, I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, I, I haven't looked into it that much but they have a very strong st- school choice movement in Indiana. In Idaho, we have advanced opportunities and a, f- a strong family structure. We've got to recognize why we're spending so little money instead, and yet getting a good return on investment. Uh, this is an important thing to talk about education because when I talk about Im- improve, increasing parental involvement, we're talking about improving uh, outcomes without any extra money. And that's really what I think one of the things you'd be interested in even though we can disagree on other things
0: well I mean there's there's plenty to agree and disagree on but I, uh, I you know I've always been aiming for that uh, 51st in the nation let's let's be you know 57th in the nation and we'll just add in all the uh, territories and so on into the well we probably mix, are yeah. if you add them all in they, you know look I'm, I, I, I need a The amount of money you spend is never an indicative, uh, an indicator of of success. If that were the case, what is it? Washington uh, D.C. would have the best schools in the nation, and they don't. Uh, Or is it New York State? I can't. I I think it's
1: New York. They spend twenty two thousand per kid. We spend about seven thousand. Yeah,
0: and I'd love to spend half of that.
1: And in fact, in New York City, they have forty five percent of their. No, it's Massachusetts that have forty five percent of their population, adult population, that has a baccalaureate degree or higher. Idaho only has twenty seven percent which indicates a, a, a cultural view of the importance of education. Uh, Indiana has 27% also, and they're in the top 10 in these categories. So uh, money isn't everything, no.
0: Money is not everything. Common Core. Common we did, Core. We, we uh, started talking about last, last year, I think there was a, an agreement among the House and Senate Education Committees that we need to do something differently. There was an interim committee that had been working on it over the course of the summer. Where are we on that?
1: That's a great question. That's why I asked it. Yeah. (laughs) I think the math subcommittee did a a wonderful job. We gave all these subcommittees because the legislative interim committee did not write the standards or rewrite them. Right. We turned them over to uh, subcommittees that were organized by the State Department of Education. Now, I was on one of them. So members of the committee could be on the subcommittees. But uh, the subcommittee over math, which uh, Representative Kirby was on, I think did a marvelous job because they started with Massachusetts standards. They abandoned Idaho standards completely in math. Well, there are similarities. You know, standards, you're going to add subtraction, decimals. There's going to be similarities in all standards. But they, uh, they put in there what, what age or what grade level students should be fluent in the math facts, you know, like addition, subtraction, and as you get into third and fourth grade, multiplication, division because that had been lacking from the previous standards. So there's real emphasis on that. They have more examples. Long story short, I think the public's is going to be happy with the math standards. The English language standards, ELA standards, uh, I don't think we can give quite as rosy report. We, we did find out a couple of things. We, we made lots of changes. So at one time, people said you couldn't change the Common Core standards. Well, the ELA subcommittee, Started with the Common Core standards, then we started changing them. So you can change them. And Idaho teachers and, and uh, parents, mostly teachers, went through all the standards, made quite a few edits. In this ninth through 12th grade, we reduced quite a few standards, mostly because of Representative Marshall. The, the big problem with the standards, though, is they're agnostic, meaning you should be able to do this. But with ELA, they need to be associated with some sort of content. So this standard could apply to the Bible or the Communist Manifesto or the Constitution or, you know, it could apply to anything. So uh, one of the things I'm suggesting is that we put a preface in front of the ELA standard saying you should have something like the core knowledge sequence as, as a content guide. Now, the core knowledge sequence has nothing to do with Common Core. It was established previous to Common Core. But it's a 285-page document that just is like a syllabus for everything from ELA to math, history, geography, music, between kindergarten and the eighth grade. And it includes, the reason I think school districts need to choose some curriculum that ties into this is because um, that commons, uh, the, the Core Knowledge Foundation sequence um, talks a lot about historical literature, uh, historical American events. You know, one thing Florida did is they embedded a lot of civics, you know, American history, and so that's what I'm suggesting. School districts need to go after now. Florida, they can choose at the state level the curriculum, but in Idaho, local school districts need to do that. The problem with the big network, uh, big uh, you know national. Uh, textbook publishers, is they say they're Common Core aligned, but it's full of a lot of empty curriculum. It's not uplifting. It, it doesn't reinforce traditional American values. It doesn't talk about American history. And so we, we need to, but the standards could could go to any of these. You could have good curriculum or bad curriculum. So I'm suggesting we need to say the content that we recommend, and then they can go find the curriculum to meet it, to fi- meet this that fits its criteria, is X, Y, and Z, more of a classical, traditional curriculum or content.
0: What do you hope that that will accomplish?
1: Well, you you were talking about the role of school boards, right? Mm -hmm. Well, especially with the innovative classroom, it will will allow parents to go to school boards and say, listen, we don't have to buy these national textbooks. We can write our own if we can't find what we want. Utah's done that. It's in the state constitution. There's a center up in in the University of Idaho that can help school districts write their own textbooks. So we can start changing the culture from a socialist culture to what the constitution says we should be doing, and that is teaching education that that reinforces a Republican form of government.
0: And you you think that's going to happen, and how long would it take for that to occur?
1: Well, one day less than when we start.
0: I mean... A year, two years, you, six for months? what
1: to accomplish—to change the culture, or for to change for, the... for
0: you to get to a place where your standards are written in such a way that allows for this diversion into a more civics-based education that reinforces uh, American principles. I guess is the way I'd frame that. It sounds wonderful, but I'm uh, just wondering about uh, the time—time, time two
1: or three otherwise. years before you know, before teachers kind of re- retool and especially if we make that, this is what the legislature, this is what the Constitution says we're supposed to be doing, then the State Board of Education will go out, because uh, these standards aren't going to be uh, adopted till next year, but they can go out in their spring tour when they visit with all the school districts and say these, this is one of the things that, we're, that the legislature said we should do. Here's the content standards. Here's the preface in front of the of ELA the standards. Um, so, we we can start seeing some significant changes within two or three years.
0: Is that is that fast enough? I mean, for, so if I'm the parent of a ninth grader, what you're saying is that my ninth grader won't have any access to that whatsoever. They won't benefit from that. They'll be out in in either the college or the workforce by the time that comes to fruition. It seems just move glacially, and aren't That's we actually really fast? But but, but I mean for the purposes of where we are, because I I look at and, and maybe you have a different view and I, I'd be interested so to So
1: Wayne, I gotta ask you a question. Are you looking for possibilities or stumps?
0: Well, I'm looking for possibilities, but I think the possibilities are have to come sooner rather than on the timetable that you're talking about. I, I look at these these young people that are you know attending the black lives matters protests and they all seem to be between the ages of 17 and 25 and i kind of wonder if we taught them to be that way do you
1: well definitely people make decisions based upon what they've heard
0: but but you think that the next 2 or 3 years to get that done is just the best we can do or or that's just the way it is because it's government i may i'm, I'm i know yeah, you
1: that's the best you can do that's the now, best you can do we're, we're talking about changing a system it's the parents responsibility they need to wake up and what we could do to make more rapid changes is I could give you this core knowledge sequence that has more American like has Johnny Appleseed and Abraham Lincoln and George Washington when he cut down the apple tree and sayings that like you know two wrongs don't make a right now all sorts of great things in fact I show it to legislators and they say this is what I thought education should be but I could give you that that uh, link and parents can go find it right now and they can, you know, during the summer they can review their students curriculum because no, we can't wait for the school system to change. Parents need to act. So
0: you're doing the part that you think you can do with the system because that's the area, the field that you operate in what parents are able to do is an entirely different thing. That information is available to them. It's out there. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk, let's because we're running out of time, I think, I'm, I'm guessing. I would think um, we are. Um, let's let's we're, we're putting Dustin to <laughs> sleep. We're putting him to sleep, which isn't good. Let's run over to <laughs> higher education, because I don't want to leave that on the table, because you did have an interesting conversation at the Senate Education Committee and House Education Committee. I have actually heard what I would say is the most fascinating discussion in either of the committees in a long time, where the members are actually asking questions about what it is the students in the higher education system are given in terms of the social justice indoctrination. Is that something you're concerned about? Is that something you think your committee is concerned about for this legislative yes session?
1: Yes. both. How concerned-
0: much and what are you going to do about it?
1: <laughs> you know, that, that's a great question because higher ed, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time trying to get involved in the higher ed space, but uh, what I have been doing, I can tell you about what I'm going to do in the future you know, I'm still trying to figure out what that should be. But your report, you know, the Idaho Freedom Foundation report on social justice at BSU, was a great report. You had some good su- suggestions there. Not all of them I agree with, but they, you had some really good ones. Um, one thing, uh, I suggested to President Trump that she create a program entitled The Failure of Socialism Throughout History that high school kids could take as dual credit. And I've also mentioned that to president of CSI. I'd love to see that course, because if students start seeing what has happened through history and how a failure socialism has been, it it neutralizes a lot of this social justice nonsense. Because social justice uh, basically sets up dissension. And it's just not the right way to go. Uh, The other thing I did, I sent all the presidents a letter Asking them, telling them, which definition of social justice do you go with? And I gave them the UN definition, which is more like in your report, and then mine, which is help in individual become responsible and able to be self-funded individuals, and, you know, respectful taxpayers. And uh, then I said, what is your policy for students that experience in, uh, uh, instructor bias? We need to get that out right away. So students on campus that are experiencing bias and intimidation from other students or the instructors know where to go to get redress.
0: Are you, how are the university presidents responding to what you've had to say and what your inquiries have been?
1: The president of LCSC and the community college presidents, I think, are great. The other three, I'll have to find out if they got the email or not.
0: We'll see. (laughs) What is the legislature prepared to do about this? Uh, or is the legislature more inclined to take a back seat and just wag its finger, its collective finger from the sideline and say, do better next time. And we'll see you in a year.
1: I don't know. Uh, I know some JFAC members are very concerned. So there's some strings, financial strings that could be pulled. I, I think uh, because a few of us have been bringing this issue up, there's some concern on the part of the presidents that they don't want to get out of hand because uh, we we spend like 300 million dollars a year on universities and we don't want them subverting the idaho way of life
0: could could you say to the university presidents we want you to excise the money that's being spent on social justice programs on your office of gender equity and your lbgtq offices and various other very center-left very victimhood-driven types of organizations on campus from the system.
1: I think that's something that uh, we actually could potentially do in intent language. Uh, But what you said earlier, I don't know if it's on tape or not, about how the constitution at BSU was changed, Mm -hmm. Uh, BSU's student body constitution, I think is very instructive,
0: That was not on tape, so I didn't want to get that on tape. But what happened at Boise State, by way of background, because it wasn't on there, it's important, is that Boise State has a student body, and that student body has a constitution. The constitution was changed a few years ago so that it has not just two branches of government, a general assembly and a higher body of senate, but also it has a third branch of government called the Inclusive Excellent Student Council Council which basically is allowed to veto or override those policies passed by the legislature at the at Boise State that doesn't conform with the social justice agenda. Yeah. And and money from students goes to that. It is funded by public dollars.
1: Th- this is a work in progress. So uh, I can say that uh, I think the presidents of the universities, especially University of Idaho and ISU and LCSC, uh, are, are not beset by quite as much. But I'd love to see your reports. Uh, but I, I really can't answer the question in a way that would make people happy right now. It's a work in progress.
0: It's good that it's a work in progress. That's something. So are you are you committed to not leaving the 2021 legislative session? That's not, that's not an ultimatum. But I <laughs> wanted to ask, are you, are you committed? Is it something important enough that you want to continue working until you find some way of roping this in? Or do you think that we're going to conclude the 2021 legislative session without progress being made on this front?
1: Well, right now, you know, I had it's very likely that the progress will be minimal because the two things that I've thought of or have been talked about, because, you know, I hear things and they're not my ideas, is some intent language. The other is uh, we, we could do some sort of resolution or even letter from the education committee's Saying we'd like to be BSU to change your constitution back. Now we need to think about those, you know, the ramifications, and you know, you know, you got to shop things around because just because we have a good idea between us, there's things that we maybe haven't thought of.
0: But at least there's a discussion. To you. I do not have a monopoly on good ideas. I have ninety percent of the good no, ideas. I thought you did. <laughs> we got that on tape. Though, right? You have it on tape because I do not have a monopoly on the good ideas. But at least there's other. Conversations taking place about what could be done. I, I I just like the fact that people are asking questions. I know in JFAC there were questions asked about the University of Idaho's Black Lives Matters resource page, and I've got to tell you that I think that uh, President Green wasn't entirely candid about what happened with that. For example, that website had nothing but socialist and extremist viewpoints. And just prior to the start of the legislative session, they changed the website to include commenters uh, like, for example, Walter Williams and Thomas Sewell. But they went months with nothing but extreme leftist viewpoints on the funded and paid for by the taxpayers and the students at the University of Idaho.
1: Yeah, there needs to be, I don't mind having Black Lives Matter people talk, but there has to be exposure to other people that are equally Absolutely. articulate and, and I mean you wouldn't available. expect
0: you wouldn't expect for the department of health and welfare to set up a black lives matter's webpage but for some reason it's okay at the University of Idaho I guess is a way to for me to frame that
1: well it's a little bit different the universities but they should have a webpage that is similar with like say Walter Williams or Thompson. Frederick Bastia or you know different people uh, I've even written some
0: You have written some. (laughs) That is a good point. You can offer up your writings in a a digital format because the little booklets are are all very good, but they're not, you know, necessarily transferable to the web. But they they are there. But the the also the other question that I kind of wonder about with regards to the university system is: they kind of in statute it says that the state board of education is responsible for setting tuition and fees, and they told legislators and they and they're not bashful about this because they said it during the JFAC hearings, they said it in the House, they said it in the Senate, that if the legislature passes the governor's budget, then they will smile upon their students and not raise tuition and fees. I find that fascinating because the legislature could easily say, you know what, we're responsible for that. We don't want you raising tuition and fees either, and so we're going to put that into the appropriation bill that whatever you charged last year also has to be charged this year. What's the appetite of the legislature to take that authority, that that separate authority away from the university presidents and the state board of education?
1: Uh, I have no idea.
0: What's your appetite?
1: Uh, it's not great. There's some other things I need to do th- need to investigate first.
0: I mean, do you think that they should just have that ability to just separate out the the issues and? Say, regardless because I you know whether the legislature raises uh, general fund spending a lot or a little, the answer every year for almost every uh, every year for the last forty years has been we're raising tuition. When does the legislature take ownership of that or never? I don't know something you're looking at.
1: I have not been looking at that.
0: How about this one? should t- students have the ability to Decide where their fees go. That's another conversation I hear some lawmakers talking about. So, for example, if I don't want to fund the gender equity center on campus, I should be able to opt out of that.
1: I think that could get legs in the legislature. Why is that? Uh, it's, it's a choice issue that, you know, you're, you're supporting something that you don't want to support. If you want to support it, go ahead and do it.
0: If it's so wonderful, then you should have the ability. Yeah. One more thing. Just I
1: better get going here pretty quick.
0: Can I get can I, One more to throw at you, and then I'll get out of your hair. Is
1: this the ambush part of this? Oh, no, no, not at all. There's
0: nothing more ambushy than, than what you've already gotten. The uh, Boise State University and Idaho State University are both home to national public radio on campus. Mm-hmm. Why do we have that? And should it be allowed to continue?
1: Well, what do you think, Wayne?
0: i I invited everyone knows by opinion what's yours <laughs> well should 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 national public radio should the i guess should government be in the radio business is one and number two because the state Board of education holds those licenses and two I, I, I don't know if you've li- have you listened to NPR lately? I have not you should really take a listen to it it's it's the alt weekly of the radio and it's paid for by. the the citizens of the state of Idaho. There's about, uh, it's not a huge amount of money, several hundred thousand dollars from taxpayers go to support those programs.
1: I'll have to listen.
0: Yeah. Should the government be in the radio business? I mean, just intellectually, not even talking about specific to KBSU and KBSX and uh, KISU.
1: Well, there's a lot of things that fundamentally I agree or disagree with that aren't what I promote or don't promote because people think they should be promoted. So I will listen and we'll see if there's a problem that we should address. I'm not ready to answer that
0: question. Fair enough. Uh, Final thoughts on education in the 2021 legislative session.
1: Oh, I think this is going to be a a very interesting session that will hopefully be viewed in the future as really jump-starting the ability of parents to to oversee and, and get involved in their kids' education, which will be a very positive thing. So I'm I'm very positive about this session.
0: Well, I know you got a lot ahead of you. You got a big big agenda, and uh, uh, you got, you're at the bullseye. That's for sure. More than I am, even, which is saying a lot. But I appreciate you taking time to come on the program, and you're welcome back anytime. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, and we'll be back again for another edition of the halftime report. Stay tuned.